Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. The most successful, happy ones are the people who have adjusted. I mean, you look at someone like Daniel Balud, you look at someone like Wolfgang Puck. These people have been around forever. They're still super successful. They embrace everything. They embrace technology. They embrace celebrity. They embrace shipping their products. They love young talent. It's not all or nothing. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Andrew Friedman has made a career of chronicling the life and the work of some of the world's most famous and successful chefs. What makes him and his work so interesting to me is the effort that he puts into going beyond the food. Andrew has had a front row seat to the evolution of our industry over the last 20 plus years. And today we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, when I first got into this, I didn't know I was getting into what I do, to be honest. I stumbled into this world. I was trying to be a screenwriter. And one of my clients was the Gotham Barn Grill during its absolute heyday. And I got to be very close with Alfred Portali, who until about two years ago was the chef there. And long story short, Alfred asked me to collaborate on his first cookbook, the Gotham Bar and Grill cookbook. And I thought that would be a one-time lark. And then when the book did as well as it did, I thought, well, maybe this could be a way to start writing for a living, at least, instead of going to an office and putting on a suit and tie and taking client meetings and all that stuff. And I very abruptly quit my very successful accidental PR career and started looking for new books to do. But all that while, I was trying to write screenplays and trying to sell screenplays. And it wasn't until probably, I mean, I'm not even kidding when I say this. It wasn't until probably around 2008, 2009, when I was writing a book called Knives at Dawn about the Boku's Door cooking competition. That I had this realization I'd kind of accidentally become an expert of some kind in chefs just by collaborating with them on so many books and spending so much time behind the scenes at their restaurants. And my entire social life almost is called from the ranks of the hospitality business. And I started, that book was actually my agent's idea. I never would have thought to do it. It was my first solo nonfiction effort. And I kind of had this moment where I realized that I'd become a bit of an expert in this world and started driving my whole career in that direction, which is covering chefs, cooks, kitchen culture, issues related to the kitchen. I mean, that's what I kind of see as my purview now. And I get why you think it's interesting. And I'm sure you get why I think it's interesting, but why do you think it's interesting to the masses? I don't know how to answer the question. I mean, for me, it all started with Anthony Bourdain, to be honest. I remember vividly where I was sitting when I read Kitchen Confidential and thinking, this is so interesting. Like I spend all my time around these people too. And he's really, I mean, yeah, it was a little jazzed up and a little tawdry and whatever, but I thought that was a pretty 
just kind of blunt look at what the life was like and people just ate it up, no pun intended. And I won't say that's when I decided, because I was very early into what I was doing at that point, but I feel like he recognized that this world that people around it just kind of take for granted is fascinating. I mean, I think it's a profession that in many ways exists outside the lanes of normal life. The hours are not, maybe they're normal if you're an ER worker, you know, or something like that, but they're not what most people consider business hours. There is an element of entertainment about it. And there is this notion, you know, people talk about front of house and back of house or kitchen. I prefer kitchen and dining room, but that also could be looked at as kind of backstage and onstage. There is the, what's going on back there? What's the world back there? Who are the people behind this beautiful, delicious food that I'm eating? How did the chef come up with this stuff? Oh, they used to live here. And then they work for this person. And then they work for that person. And you put all that through a funnel. And what comes out the other end is what's on my plate. And that's interesting to people. I think it is like, I know a lot of chefs don't like the term art. They don't like referring to food as art. Even some surprising people, right? Like Massimo Bottura does not think of food as art. I mean, the person who you'd say maybe as much as anybody does kind of conceptual brainy stuff, right? But I do think the process is exactly like an artistic process. It is an expression of some kind. It's a very personal expression that we take into our senses, into our bodies. I mean, it's deeply personal on both ends of the equation. And I just think people became fascinated with where all that comes from, how that all happens. And then, of course, there's the built-in drama of every service, if you're lucky, you know, in a busy restaurant. There's also this amazing dichotomy. I'm sure you're familiar with it. I imagine a lot of your listeners are. But years ago, Marco Pierre White wrote this book, White Heat. And that was kind of the pre-Tony Tony, right? Like it was, here's what the kitchen looks like. And it was these kind of very dungeon-looking black and white photographs of him and his crew, but juxtaposed with this beautiful three-star Michelin food that those kitchen creatures were putting out. And I think that dichotomy is really fascinating to people. I mean, that cliche still exists. It's now just one type of kitchen that you might encounter, but I still do think the contrast between the life of who's in the kitchen generally and the food that comes out also interesting. So I just think there's all these layers to that onion that people who aren't immersed in it find very compelling. And what's your intention? So let's assume that by 2009, 2010, you figured out that you've fallen into a career. So with every interview, with every book, what is the intention? What are you trying to bring to light that you believe is in the shadows? Well, I think a lot of what I just said is that like when I was writing Knives at Dawn, which was, again, it was my first book. I don't think it's a great book by any stretch, but I was interviewing all these cooks and chefs who were around competing in the competition. The, actually, the protagonist of that book was Tim Hollingsworth, who's now got his own success at Otium Restaurant in Los Angeles. And he won the big global cooking competition that was on Netflix a couple of years ago, The Final Table. But Timmy was a sous chef at the French Laundry when I was writing that book. We didn't know each other before he won the right to represent the U.S. in that competition. And when I sat down to interview him, I mean, it was like I'd known him my whole life. I mean, I knew so much just about him. I could just intuit so much about him. So that struck me as I kind of saw my, I don't want to sound precious about it, but I just started 
to see myself coming from, you know, I came from an upper middle class background. I was an English major in college. I worked office jobs until I was 30. I mean, as different a life as you could have from your average cook. But I felt like I knew how to kind of bridge what, what was going on with them for somebody like me, for your average reader. And I still find it odd that so many of my friends are chefs. It's like such an opposites attract kind of thing. And this is really dating myself, but I generally refer to it as kind of the Richie Cunningham, Arthur Fonzarelli relationship, you know? But what is my intention? My intention is, well, first of all, in all writing, my intention is to be very honest and very true to reality. I tend to over-research. I tend to over-interview people. Most of that stuff ends up on the cutting room floor, but it's really important to me when I finish something that people you know, tell me they feel like I got it right. And in terms of like my podcast is main, I think most of my listenership is actually industry. I mean, I can't 100% validate that, but the reviews we get on Apple podcasts and the emails and DMs I get, it's almost 100% industry people from aspiring cooks to students, to line cooks, to chefs, to chef owners. That's almost exclusively who I hear from. And my goal is to amass with the show, certainly, that I do, you know, a catalog that's comparable. I guess the closest thing I could think of would be like what James Lipton did with Inside the Actor's Studio. Like, yeah. here's a couple hundred people. And from childhood to now, this is how they got into a kitchen. This is how they learned how to be there. This is how they course corrected along the way. And in the case of, chefs or people who are doing pop-ups or doing their own food, let's say, how they found what I think of as their voice on the plate. And I feel like that catalog, I hope, I do hear this from people, is really valuable to young cooks. And even maybe I'd like to think maybe for older, more mature cooks who are looking for a little new shot of adrenaline or a little different perspective or to understand the up-and-coming generation. I mean, I don't know if that sounds Pollyannish, but that's really what that show is about. When I started it, I had broader ambitions for it. You know, I was really into Mark Marin's podcast, you know, and that had started off with him just interviewing fellow comics and I'm a comedy nut. And then it grew into this massive global thing where he's a generalist now. And I really wanted the interviews to be similar to his and that they were very personal, real dialogues that could go off on, yeah, it's a show about chefs. If someone had a tough relationship with their dad, and they're willing to talk about it, we'll get into it. Somebody's gone through therapy and they're willing to talk about it, we'll get into it. If somebody came out during their cooking career, we'll get into it. It's not just about the food. You know, I'd hope that would be more appealing to a more general audience, but I think maybe so much of the show spends its time in kind of the nuts and bolts of kitchen life that it's really just found a predominantly industry audience. And I'm fine with that. I'm 100% fine with that. You've had a front row seat for this massive evolution of chef culture. And I'm curious to know, over the years, throughout the interviews and these intimate relationships you have, did you see the tide coming in? I think there's multiple tides. Are you referring to the <laughs> Me Too tide? Or are you referring to just sort of the kinder, gentler kitchens of 2022? The latter, just the kinder, gentler. Not a lot of guys are out there throwing knives. There aren't a lot of young people out there standing in line hoping to get the same jobs that Anthony Bourdain espoused in Kitchen Confidential. 
it's a different world. And what I've seen from my vantage point is more established chefs are struggling to adjust, but you were there through that adjustment period. So I'm curious to get your perspective. I did not perceive it as a slow gathering. I don't want to say storm because that sounds negative and I think it's been a positive thing, but I did not see it as a slow gathering tide. From where I sat, it happened somewhat quickly. Something that kind of bothers me about the, and I'm not disagreeing with your premise, but something that's always bothered me, which I'd probably like to say is the beginnings of my answer, is I always felt like that there was this understanding or this perception that that was universal. And I don't ever believe it was. I mean, I can point you to David Waltuck, who opened Chanterelle Restaurant in 1979 with his wife, Karen, was never a kitchen screamer, never believed in it, thought it, thought it had a negative impact on the food. Somebody like Mike Anthony in New York, not his style. There have always been people, even in the big cities or even in big, bad New York, who didn't operate that way. And I do sometimes meet civilians and they hear what I do and they go, oh, you know, those chefs are all like it's a universal thing. I've never believed it's a universal thing. It also kind of discounts how many successful women chefs we've had over the years, very few of whom behave that way. But that said, it seemed like a fairly rapid change to me. I don't disagree with you that I think there are some, whatever you said, well-established. I, I guess that's a euphemism for older. I think there are some, <laughs> you know, I think there are some older chefs who got screamed into competence when they were younger and whether or not they're screamers or just a little bit tough or whatever it is, I think had a hard time and still do shifting into like the kinder, gentler mode. Again, though, I don't think that's universal. I've talked to a lot of chefs. I can't even talk about it publicly. People would be shocked who've like gone into therapy like in their 60s and really are trying to change. And change is hard. Change is hard. I'm not justifying that behavior, but I think it is difficult for people. But no, I do. And people have said stuff privately to me. And I've said it. I had once with a chef. I call it the few good men conversation. A chef of the generation of which you're vaguely referring to was giving me a lift somewhere. And we were talking about what you were just asking me. I said, you're like Jack Nicholson in the witness chair. Like you think you're like, all you've done is weaken a country today. All you've done is weaken kitchens. And this guy said to me, because I can't lie. I, that is how I feel. I 100% feel that way. And I know that that's also an opinion that is out there, that they feel like that was like a boot camp kind of mentality and it made them the cooks they are. And it toughened them up. And I mean, probably in terms of just the results, they're not wrong. That is probably true. I have to say also for all of the positive change, and I do think it's positive, there are still people out there who do want that life, who are looking for like the college football coach they never had, who are looking for the taskmaster, who are looking to be challenged almost in a reality show kind of way. People who are drawn to like the three-star Michelin kitchens, I think they're willing to take that trial by fire. Look, I think that that culture still exists. I think it's less prevalent than it's ever been. And I don't think it speaks to the newest generation of chefs coming out. But that's not to say that there certainly aren't people out there that crave that. Kind of in that vein, the older I get, the harder it is for me to judge people as good or bad because people are super complex and bad people do good things all the time and good people do bad things all the time. And the Me Too movement, and I think the BLM movement and all of these things, it obliterated the careers of folks you know. And I'm wondering, 
How did that affect you personally? How were you able to reconcile that in your mind? Prior to the pandemic, I could barely use my iPhone. I'm a restaurateur, not a tech guru. But over the last two years, we've seen that tech can play a vital role in helping us make more money and save money. And that tech can show up at some pretty unlikely places, like your kitchen sink. Dawn Professional is a detergent and degreaser that can help reduce your labor expense and your overhead on cleaning supplies through leveraging the latest technological innovation in cleaning products. Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy Duty Degreaser is specifically formulated to cut grease two times faster versus the leading food service degreasers. While Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink, reducing sink changeover versus the leading competitor's professional dish soap. Save time and money by upgrading to Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent and Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy-Duty Degreaser from PNG Professional. I think some people were, were revealed to be not very, I mean, I, to go against what you just said, not very good people. Not very good people. I have said since the moment those, you know, like the John Besh story, I think was the first, and then the Batali news. I mean, when those stories started to break, I never knew John all that well. I'd seen him at some conferences and stuff. Mario, I knew we weren't like buddies. We didn't hang out. But I've been writing about this industry in New York for years. One of the cooks he came up with is a very close friend of mine. He was always very nice to me. If I wanted to come to one of the restaurants, getting you know me in and that kind of thing. But you know, those revelations were fairly conclusive. I mean, I don't know if they'll ever be litigated to completion or to a guilty verdict. But if you think back to like the 60 Minutes piece and all the on-the-record interviews in the Times, like it's hard to argue with any of it, right? But what I've said from the beginning is I feel like the biggest revelation at that time was for well-behaved men. I didn't know all this. I mean, I knew people got drunk and crazy, right? I knew that. In terms of what we would deem harassment or assault from people who were hosting national morning shows and were beloved industry figures, you know, and best-selling authors, I didn't have an inkling. Several years ago, I wrote a profile for O oh, the Oprah magazine of April Bloomfield. And this was in the early days of the Spotted Pig. And I lived just up the street at the time from the Spotted Pig. So I used to get, first of all, I could get a table in what was a no reservation restaurant. And I would get invited up to what is now infamously known as the rape room, this little like tacky kind of gentleman's club that, you know, the Ken had upstairs. It was like something out of Goodfellas. It was like a little room with very nondescript furniture. And it was, I guess, probably a one bedroom apartment or maybe even just a studio, some little votives around. And then he had like a kid. <laughs> I mean, it really was like Goodfellas who would go get you like a soda out of the fridge or a beer out of the fridge. And you could just hang there after your dinner. I had no idea what went on there. I mean, I don't know if it was like when somebody like me was coming, it was like code red, you know, and everything. I don't know. I don't know. So it was a revelation to me. And I've had this talk with other people who kind of live in a similar space to me and they had the same experience of it. But in terms of reconciling it, I mean, to me, it was fairly open and shut. I don't know what the good gloss you could put on any of it is. And I'll put it this way. When I have, in terms of reconciling, like it's probably the same for you, but there's stories now because now everyone's talking. There are stories that and reputations that haven't made it, haven't broken 
the uh, threshold of coverage, right? That journalists haven't been able to get it enough stuff on the record, or they haven't been able to get enough details to satisfy their editors or their lawyers. But some of us hear stuff. And I don't book people who I know to be, forget harassers or sexual abusers. I forget, not even, I mean, that level for sure. People who I just know to be huge jerks. I don't book them on my show. And I'm talking about some huge names. I just don't go to them. That's where I am. And I will say that that's probably an evolution for me. I mean, when I first came into the industry, big personalities were celebrated. And that was around the time that Gordon Ramsay was starting to shout out people on television every week. And I never thought that was particularly a good thing. But this whole crazy, tough world that people chose to throw themselves into and see if they could sink or swim, that was compelling to me. And people spoke lovingly of their days getting screamed at. I mean, talk to someone who came up in the 70s and 80s. They get to like a story where someone chucked a saute pan at them and they're laughing. Right. When they, oh, when they tell hey, you. Look, Curtis so, Stone and Tim Hollingsworth, both regale stories of, you know, yeah, the, so, the, the tough days. Yeah. And when I was around hearing those stories from people in almost a nostalgic way, yes, I had no problem with it. But now I've evolved along with everybody. One of the things I say all the time to older chefs, more mature chefs who are resistant to this, because again, I don't think they all are, is... And I just think it's so important in life to have this notion front of mind is things change. Yeah, it'd be nice if people still wanted to be your sous chef for five years. That's probably not going to happen. That used to be normal. Now you're lucky if you get a year. Okay, but that's life right now. Yeah, I understand when you came up, you wouldn't have dreamed of calling yourself a chef and putting your own shingle out until you were like in your 30s. And you find it offensive that someone who came in fifth place on Top Chef has a chain of restaurants <laughs> at age 26. But things change. Things change. And also, it's not all bad. First of all, it's easier now to make a living. I mean, not now with COVID and the business carnage of the last several years, not to mention the human cost. But until this moment that we're in, this extended crisis, cooks and chefs, yeah, there was still a ways to go but earning better probably than they had in the past, more opportunities, more different ways to be a cook or a chef, corporate jobs and all this kind of thing, and the possibility of celebrity and product, you know, all that stuff, which is relatively new historically, that goes hand in hand with the other stuff. You're not going to fight that tide. And I think as soon as you start kind of carping about that stuff, you're on your way to being old. I think the most successful, happy ones are the people who have well, Justin is there. I mean, you look at someone like Daniel Balud, you look at someone like Wolfgang Puck. These people have been around forever. They're still super successful. They embrace everything. They embrace technology. They embrace celebrity. They've embraced shipping their products. They love young talent and nurturing it. It's not all or nothing. It's not just about the ideologies and the culture that have changed over the last 20 years, and especially the last 20 months. The very definition of what a restaurant is has changed. And I'm curious to know, when you think about the true innovators in our industry today, who comes to mind? I probably don't have as well-informed an answer to that as I should because I am so focused on what's called traditional restaurants and what I do. I mean, I think someone like Roy Choi is going to be looked back on as an incredibly important person. We're not close or anything, but I had an opportunity out of the blue to speak with him like in spring of 20, in the early days of COVID, and everything was shut down right? His brick and mortar restaurant in Vegas was shut down. You know what wasn't shut down? His three food trucks in LA. 
they were still driving around, posting where they were going to be. People had to stand six feet apart to get the food. You ordered online. But that business model did not suffer for COVID, which is an astonishing thing. I mean, food trucks obviously are now nothing new, but I think he's going to be looked back on as a really important person. I think people who have started to go outside the mold of the traditional restaurant, it's so funny because I can't now remember... I don't remember who's behind it, but there's a place called Gero, I think is the name, G-U-E-R-O, in Portland, Oregon. Little Mexican restaurant. It's a restaurant. There's tables and chairs. They will come around and refill your water glass. It's not a fast, casual concept. It's, you know, it's lacy designed and charming. But you order your food at a counter, and you put a little thing on your table with a number, and they bring it to you. And there's a little station where you help yourselves to chips and salsa if you want it. And it's a more affordable meal. The food is exactly as it would be as if you had full service at your table. And I remember going there. I went to Feast Portland in 2019, I think. And I hadn't seen anything really like that in New York. It probably existed, but I hadn't really seen that kind of a model. But I think people who were just playing around with the format, I think certainly people who were doing pop-up dinners. There's a company, it's not a chef, but there's a company called Resident that operates in New York. They do what you would, I guess, technically call pop-ups, but I don't think of it as a pop-up. They do these one-night dinners. The chefs are generally people who are at the sous chef level at Michelin-starred restaurants. It's a chance for these people to do a five-course tasting menu because they're all developing for the day when they get their shot, right? And this company, Resident, they partner with luxury high-rises mostly in New York, and they'll do the dinners in one of their show units, or they'll do the dinner on their rooftop, or they'll do the dinner in a vacant apartment. And they have a couple of buildings they work with on the regular in New York. And it's a ticketed event. It's a kind of a cool way to see who's next. I mean, for me, it's been a great way to kind of see some upcoming talent and what they're all about. It's a very diverse group of chefs that they call on. And what's interesting to me about that is a lot of the pop-ups and whatnot they're kind of crushing for the chefs. Most of them, they do it all, or them and their significant other, or them and a buddy who helps them out. And it's like a brutal week leading up to like a pop-up dinner. It's tough. And what I love about this is that this company, they provide the plateware, the venue, they do the marketing, they do the ticketing, they provide a sommelier, and they pay for your sous chef for the night. It's pretty cool. Again, I don't have as good a list as I probably should, but anyone who's innovating right now, all of which to me, I think, is about ultimately better quality of life for people who can find a way to live not stuck in the schedule and brutality of brick and mortar restaurant situation and the financial stress that comes with that. But then also, I think it's a happier way for people to be. I mean, you can customize it if you want it to your life. And again, I know there are people who are like, well, that's not really a restaurant. Well, the restaurants we have today don't look exactly like the restaurants we had 200 years ago either. So I kind of love how open-ended the dining experience is today. I think it's pretty great. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? The general piece of advice I give to people is, this is for young cooks, people who want to be chefs one day. And I don't think they hear it enough, and I think it's really important, which is just be attuned to what gets you going. Just be attuned to what turns you on. 
if you look back at someone like David Chang, who I think objectively is one of the most influential chefs we have right now, right? Someone who trained under Daniel Balloud, right? Classic French scenario. I was in New York, Momofuku Noodle Shop. That was his first place. And it was a head scratcher. What? This guy who worked for Danielle is opening a noodle counter? It's a counter, right? And then people went and it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Now, I don't really know David well. I've never had a chance to talk to him about the moment he decided, yeah, I'm going to do that. But at the time, it seemed crazy. It made no sense. When Alex Stupak left, having come from Alinea and then WD-50 as the pastry chef and did his own thing, he wanted to do something kind of punk rocky and break the mold and do something no one expected from him and started opening these Mexican restaurants. Not as crazy as it probably seemed. His wife is Mexican-American. He's been eating and cooking that food at home for years. But again, that was just what turned him on. I think a lot of the most compelling restaurant success stories of the last decade, decade and a half, are people who really like, again, for a writer, you would say, I'm listening to that voice. There's a voice I hear. I'm listening to that. I think this is the culinary equivalent of that. And I think you've got to have the courage of that passion and follow it where it takes you. And I think if you're talented, which is a big if, but if you're talented, I think those are the things that are connecting with people. What would be the punchlines of the last 10 years? People who aren't just doing their version of the avocado toast, people who are doing something that's personal to them, unique to them, that they do from a place of some kind of authority and knowledge, maybe oftentimes personal memories come into it. And just knowing that, yeah, you may have to tweak it. You may have to workshop it. You may have to do some pop-up dinners. You may need to spend, like my friend Jonathan Wu, who used to have a restaurant called Fung Tu in downtown New York. I mean, Jonathan had worked at Per Se. He had worked for a consultancy restaurant called Geisha, you know, really high-end places. He then went and was a private chef for five years. He had a vision in his mind for a, kind of a unique style of Chinese food. And he spent five years doing an occasional pop-up, reading about classic Chinese food, playing around in his kitchen. Now that's to me is, that's something like out of a movie, you know, like going off for five years, taking yourself off the PR grid, out of the public site, but he did it. Now, sadly, that restaurant didn't succeed, but that was one of my favorite restaurants in New York. It was so him. And he just had a North Star that he saw and he followed it. And to me, that's the best advice I think people can hear. That's Andrew Friedman. To check out more of his work, visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.